Hello and welcome to the Spooky Shelf Podcast. I am your host, and for this episode, your guest, Joe Ducaro. In this podcast, I invite guests from the horror community to put up their very own spooky shelf, highlighting 13 DVD titles as the best the genre has to offer. Now, you'll know me from such works as the Spooky Shelf Podcast, and maybe the Co-Pilots Podcast as well, uh, or even, potentially, the B2B Sales Playbook Podcast or the Essential B2B Podcast, which are the podcasts that I actually do for my day job which is weird it's really weird saying that you know my job is literally my hobby so making podcasts i make sales and marketing podcasts for a company and at the same time i make horror podcasts and podcasts about tv shows with co-pilots with my mate rich who you'll know from previous episodes uh, including the marianne chat so for this episode it's um, it, this is almost an episode of reflection because I've been doing the Spooky Shelf for that we've just had our fifteenth episode went out last week, and I think I please don't worry too much about this. It ain't that deep. I'm going to make a couple of changes to the podcast largely. So, but but before we get into that, what I was going to say is I'm going to answer my own questions for this episode of Spooky Shelf. You're going to hear my answers to the questions that I've posed so far on the previous fifteen episodes. Um. Something that I'm really keen to do is, and I think I was chatting to a friend about this yesterday, I think a lot of people don't really enjoy change too much. But something that I desperately want to do with Spooky Shelf is keep it, you know, original and fresh and just, you know, every now and then it just needs a lick of paint. So with that in mind, I am going to be altering the questions that I'm going to be posing to my guests from now on. So you could almost consider it almost you know, a season. We've had a season one, which was the inaugural start-up of Spooky Shelf and the questions that we, I, I came up with for that. I'm going to come up with some more questions. If you have any suggestions for questions, by the way, please feel free to um, to send them in. You can find me on Instagram at Spooky Shelf Podcast. Um, but yeah, I was, I'm keen to, um, to keep things changing up a little bit. So I'm going to be changing the you know, the wordings of the questions and the, the questions in their entirety. I'm also probably going to reduce the number of questions I ask because increasingly the recording times go on for too long. I'm just terrified people are getting bored. So I think rather than the 13 questions, I haven't quite decided on how many to go for. 10 sounds, you know, a nice round number. So then, you know, maybe around that mark. I don't know. I haven't fully thought this through, as you might be able to tell as I'm bundling through this. But that's by the by. Um, so and and that actually inspired this episode because I thought, well, if I'm going to be changing the questions, um, then I feel like if I answer the questions at the end of every mini season, it just keeps it a bit interesting, you know. So and and that sort of bookmarks right. So that was season one. Those were the guests from season one. Season two will go on to get in some amazing guests booked on. I've in talks with a few people that I'm like, oh shit, if I can get them, that would be amazing. So um, yes. That, so that's just that bit of housekeeping out of the way. So now I'm going to drill down into my answers for the first set of questions that I've posed to all my guests on the Spooky Shelf podcast. So bear with me as I refresh my memory as to what those questions were. So the first disc I'm going to ask myself for, I suppose, uh, what was the very first horror film you ever saw? Now, as with... From, I'd say probably most guests have said for this question, oh, it's between one or two, it's two or three, they can't really tell the timings or whatever. Um, I I remember the first thing that I saw which terrified me, which was the Michael Jackson thriller video. Um, 
and that was before I watched what I've got written down as my answer because there's an argument to be made yes it is a film but I also kind of selfishly want to champion this much maligned film so the answer that I've written down is Van Helsing the 2004 Hugh Jackman, Kate Beckinsale, Richard Roxburgh shambles that is Van Helsing I have rewatched this recently and over the years, having like I, I watch it semi regularly. The most recent time I watched it, I was like, "This isn't actually as bad as I remembered it being." Because the previous time, I was like, "This is a hump of shite." Um, so yeah, so Van Helsing was it was a really really fundamental film for my uh, developing taste in genre because from that from the collection of the the Dracula, the Frankenstein's creature, the Wolfman. I instantly was like, okay, so now I guess it was it's kind of Universal's way of like rebooting their Universal Monster collection. Just I wonder if it maybe was a rights thing, but I think they were hoping that I think the Mummy had come out by that point, hadn't they? So I think they were trying to sort of catch that audience with it. And it's a shame that it you know it it didn't go. I I have such such an amount of love for that for that film because it was the first thing that I saw that was like, okay, so this is in the horror realm. Yeah, it's. It's aimed, it's pitched younger and everything. It's not an out-and-out horror, I suppose. But it does introduce you to those, those sort of themes and the tropes of the genre. And, even more importantly, was on the two-disc DVD edition, which I still have, it had... Docu- like the they, I was talking about this recently. Special features on DVDs. I really, really miss those. Because that's what it ignited my love of film as well, was being able to look at how these things are made. Like, oh, these don't just exist. Like, you can work as, you know, something to do with these films. They, someone's making them, so, you know, perhaps there's a there's a, a job in it, you know? So, um, yes, but the, the special features on the Van Helsing DVD had documentaries about the original Universal Monster... Um, I can remember the trailer so clearly. The Universal Monster Collection. Um, and I, was, I was desperate to get those DVDs. I do now have them on Blu-ray. So, um, so yeah, that was my sort of introduction to the the first sort of horror e film. Uh, the fully the first fully fledged out and out horror film I saw was actually the Hammer film Dracula Prince of Darkness, and it was I was just starting to sort of dip my toe into the genre, and I was like, I, I knew I wanted to watch something that was would start to get scary because as a kid like as a young kid I was terrified of the idea of a horror film which seems bonkers now but at the time I was like I can't believe that you know all the, the cool kids at school are watching you know well when I was at very young at school it was Scream was one of them and um, I Know What You Did Last Summer those sort of like the 90s slashes were, were the big thing then so to then go and and I uh, we had I remember we had Sky Plus and I, I recorded um, Dracula Prince of Darkness because I obviously recognised the name Dracula and then I recognised that Christopher Lee was in it. Um, so I must have been about thirteen, fourteen at that point. Um, so that was the proper, proper first proper out and out horror, <laughs> out and out horror film that I saw. But I am on my shelf. I am putting the first thing as Van Helsing, and I. Care if you're not on board with it. It's one of the best films I've ever seen. <laughs> the second disc, then, which film scared you the most? I've told this story before uh, on the Spooky Chef podcast, so I will I'll keep it quite brief. This one, um, but Chris Glasson, when he was on, he mentioned emotional scarring, and I actually think that 
it, that kind of happened to me when I watched this. So my answer for this is the original Nigel Neal, 1989, The Woman in Black. Um, it We watched it in an English class. We were far too young for it. I think we must have been 13, and it was Certificate 15. So my teacher actually broke the law there. So someone call the police. Um, yeah, we watched it in school. I got to the the jump scare, which is the where she appears over the bed screaming at. It's not Arthur Kipps in the actual in the in the film that they change the name to Kid, I think, for some reason. Um, but yeah, so th- that happened, and then I felt something change in my brain chemistry. I legitimately there was like, my life before the Woman in Black and the and my life after because then it was six months of sleepless nights and waking up screaming in the middle of the night and nightmares and that sort of thing. And I, I can't remember who I was speaking to about this, but I remember feeling bored of feeling scared. I mean, we were on holiday in Cornwall and it was all sort of it's quite a miserable summer, actually. So it was all grey and miserable. And I just kept looking over these rolling hills, just being like, oh, she's still fucking over there somewhere, isn't there? So anyway, so yeah, so the woman in black, even now my dad still teases me about how scared I was about the woman in black. Um, it's, 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 it's an incredibly well thought out and well written story. An amazing idea for a ghost, you know, um, if you see her, your child, well, a child dies. That's, that's phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. And the mechanics of it as well. I hugely recommend the book. It's incredible. I do own the Blu-ray of the 1989, and this is weird. So the Blu-ray came out a couple of years ago. I think it was during COVID, actually, it came out. And I ordered it. And then when it showed up in my house, I started having Woman in Black Nightmares again. I I still, to this day, I haven't gone back and watched it. But just it being in my flat at the time, I was like, that was enough just to put the shits up me. So... So yeah, uh, The Woman in Black was the film that scared me the most. But then I think I had to go through that because then it, that's the thing that I think I've been chasing ever since. I've never quite managed to get to that level of it. But uh, yeah, it really captured my imagination. Scared the bejesus out of me. Uh, so at number three then, uh, what is my favourite slasher movie? Now, I cannot believe that I've had 15 episodes of the Spooky Shelf podcast now. And... Well, more guests than that, because some of them have had multiple guests. Um, no one said Halloween. And I just don't get that, because it's like, it's, you know, there's arguments that there was slashes before it and everything. But really, on an industrial level, the success of Halloween, it was, it, for the longest time, I think it was the most successful movie ever made. And that's only just recently been beaten, I think, because it was made on such a shoestring budget but then did such big business and and I think well uh, everything that I think about Halloween has been better explained on if you go to the um, RKG um, podcast I don't, oh, they've called it something it's called the essential guide or something if you search in your podcast app for the essential guide um, I think it's called the essential guide uh, to Halloween uh Daniel Kruper and Gav Murphy have done an amazing deep dive on the entire Halloween series. It's an incredible series of podcasts, and it's amazing to hear people speaking so eloquently and with such such love for that film. But the reason that it's my favourite slasher is, I think, well, a it's it's how iconic Michael Myers is, and that mask is, and how symbolic of our genre, I suppose that that mask is. But also. It was at around the time I was getting into horror movies, and I think, well, this is certainly my path into horror. I went through all the slashes first because they're the sort of the big, 
I guess the the poster people for for horror. So I was going through your Freddies, your Jasons, and then started on the Michael Myers. I was staying at my grandmother's house, and it was the middle of the night, and I I was staying in the lounge. Everyone had gone to bed, and I was slightly nocturnal at that point. So I was just like, ah, that's right, I'll stay up and I'll, I'll watch a film. And then I started watching Halloween on my laptop. Decided right, oh well, got up, went to the loo. It was a completely silent house, completely dark. It was gone midnight. I was the only one still up, went to the loo, came back, and as I came back into the kitchen to sit down, my brother had come downstairs and was just stood in the kitchen, completely still, and he scared the bejesus out of me, he really made me jump. He has the most uncanny ability to move silently, which even in like the creakiest house, he'll find a way to move without making a noise. So that put the shits up me, that absolutely terrified me as well. Um, but yeah, so Halloween is my favourite slasher movie. Uh, my favourite ghost or haunting horror. This is something that the Spooky Shelf really has highlighted to me, is that I am really inexperienced when it comes to ghosts and, and haunting movies. Like, the the number of times that someone said, you know, The Others is a big one that, that came up a, a lot um, for for an incredible ghost story. I still haven't gone back and watched watched the others. I do apologise to the people. I promised that I was going <laughs> to do that too when they were on the podcast. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not really sure why there is this gap in my uh, my watching history, but I think, you know, I think it was Adam Robinson I was chatting to and he said, look, we've all got these gaps, you know. There, there's all, it, no matter what your passion is, there will always be someone who goes, you haven't seen XYZ. You know, Bad Boys 2 jumped to mind, actually. <laughs> but, um, so yeah, the, I, it it really is um, sort of a weak point in my in my uh, understanding of. I have seen some ghost stuff, but just not loads of them. So, but um, my fourth disc, my favorite ghost or haunting horror movie, it's it's Lake Mungo, and I think you know as with quite a few people, I have to credit uh, Mike Munzer. Well, not only for inspiring me to create this podcast but also for introducing me to films like Lake Mungo because I it, it would have gone completely unnoticed had I not listened to the podcast um, and it's it's a masterpiece it's utterly incredible it's so layered that's the thing is like even it's like one of my other favourite films is The Prestige and with The Prestige you can take pretty much any given scene and there can be multiple things going on and there's there's arguments to be made that you could interpret it in certain ways that because there's a an aspect of the prestige to do with duality when you when you're looking at any one given thing you might be looking at any number of given things i really am trying to keep the the spoilers you know away from the prestige because if you've not seen it jesus christ go and watch it it's incredible and then watch it again and then watch it again and then get obsessed because that's what happens to everybody <laughs> um but yes lake mungo I thought it was absolutely masterful because I feel like there are three or four stories you're actually being told at the same time, but the way it presents it, it only the first time you watch it, you feel like you're watching this one story that has aspects of it that don't add up. And when you go away and you just let it percolate in your brain, you think, oh, hang on, there are connections between this part and this part. And then the it, the film does go on. It shows it. It reveals its hand really slowly, particularly towards the end. When you, I remember there was a, a Twitter um, thing went around a little while ago saying like, "What's the most haunting image or, or the the saddest image or something from a from a film?" And someone had put up what 
the to the inexperienced eye looks like quite an innocuous photograph of the family from Lake Mungo. But actually, if you know the story, and if you know the story behind the story you've been told, it's it's so affecting. If you've not seen Lake Mungo, Jesus Christ, go and watch it. It is utterly incredible. It is absolutely my favourite ghost movie. It's it's genius. It's absolutely genius. Plays a lot with the format as well of the the faux documentary. So yeah, it's really good fun. Now, number five. What is my favourite horror TV show? This is just... It's so easy, this this one to answer. It, because I've said on, on many occasions that this is it's the best story I've ever been told. It's Midnight Mass. Um, and every time I watch Midnight Mass, because I, I watch it, you know, again, semi-regularly, I'll just do a run-through of it, a run-through of it every now and then. Um, it... It hits me. It's actually it actually hits me harder every time I watch it because I think it's got. It certainly has the best ending to any story I think I've ever had because really like it's it's very difficult to. There's a there's a school of thought that with stories there's only ever seven stories you can tell at, at any one time and I think it wraps itself up in the most perfect way. And I've I've gone on and said, you know, even to to in episode two, Mike Munster, I told him this is that it, Midnight Mass felt like to me that Mike Flanagan had seen everything that interests me and every, and things that I've had a lot of questions about and things that I've spotted like allegories for stuff and and connections between the the sort of the, the biblical and the horrific. I really am trying to dance around this, which is ridiculous because I think we've spoiled it at Midnight Mass before. But um, actually, in, uh, on the last episode, Dale Driver and I had a really good chat about Midnight Mass. Um, but yeah, it's it it's got some incredible characters and some incredible performances. That means you know, I'm particularly I think of Bev Keen because how would you set up a villain? You see how they treat a dog. And you see that they treat that dog badly, and immediately you go, "Well, I've got the measure of you." Then I know exactly. I know exactly who you are, and there is not a bad performance in the entirety of Midnight Mass. There's not a bad character. Each character is given time and a bit of space to develop, and every character has their own arc. You know, it's just it's masterful storytelling. It's got. Some of the best dialogue I've ever... Well, and and indeed, some of the best monologues um, that I've ever, ever experienced. And the, the fact that the thing that keeps, you know, niggling away at me is that they made this at the height of COVID. And it was... It was to make something as perfect as, as that under such strenuous circumstances, it's just... It is just incredible, and obviously, I I joke at the end of every podcast that you know I thank Mike Flanagan and Raoul Coley, you know, and, and jokingly invite them onto the podcast. If they, I would love to have a conversation with either or both of them about it, but it really, it really resonated with me. It feels like in the same way that Becky Dark said that Buffy is in her DNA, Midnight Mass is a hundred percent in my DNA. It's, it's fundamental. 
to me. It's it's a part of me now. It will. It's it is my favourite story. And after you know thirty years of collecting stories, that's quite a bold claim to only have appeared in the last two years. You know, it was quite an innocuous thing. Like it just showed up. Like I, we were aware that I was aware that Mike Flanagan was working on the next thing after Hill House, which you know had been like Mass not existed. Hill House would probably be the answer here. Um, I knew nothing about it, and then I saw there was a couple of little references, and I was like, there is absolutely no way this is what this show is because. Because I think it, it looked like it looked like a sort of cult leader style horror. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it looked like a certain thing. So then when it starts bringing in the other aspects of it, I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. It's just I, 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 I as you can hear, I struggle to put into words my love for Midnight Mass. It's unbelievable. If you've not seen it. If this spooky, sh- if this podcast is does anything else, does nothing other than motivate one person to go and watch Midnight Mass, I'll be quite happy with how this goes. You know, I, I, you know, it's it's just the best. So, yeah, Midnight Mass, um, it's perfect. It just is perfect. <laughs> the next disc I I actually really struggled with. Uh, which horror movie has your favourite jump scare? Now. There is, I don't want to give away, when I start talking about um, a film later on down the list, I'll mention this one again, um, because it remains one of two jump scares that actually made me physically jump up out of my seat, and I mean literally my ass left the the canvas, you know. So, <laughs> um, so one of them was uh, in the haunting of Hill House, which I just mentioned. Talking about Midnight Mass, it's the jump scare uh, with Nell in the car. Um, I was, but it's that one again. Is it just shows how amazing, how incredible Mike Flanagan is, and how well he knows the timing, and particularly, you know, and so do the 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 actors in that scene as well, because. You're so invested in the dialogue, in the conversation that they're having, you just don't see it coming. And it just absolutely rocked me. It really made me start. And I did that proper <coughs> intake of breath. I just need to have a cough now, sorry. <coughs> there we go. It's trying to kill me again. Um, so, yes, so that was um, one of the two jump scares that made me actually physically jump out of my seat. Uh, I will talk about the next one when I come to that film later on down my list. So for this one, I'm going to go with um, The Orphanage because it's The Orphanage could have been my favourite ghost. In fact, had Lake Mungo not been around, The Orphanage probably would have been my answer for my favourite haunting movie. Um, the genius of the jump scare in um, The Orphanage is the fact that it's a, it's like the, um, the jump scare in American Werewolf in London. Um... Where you know when the um, the soldiers jump jump through the, the the weird sort of werewolf stormtroopers the Nazi stormtroopers jump through and take that family out and David wakes up and you think oh it's, it's all done everything's fine and then bang it's, there's another reveal that's incredible so and that's what the orphanage does really well as well is there is a scene where there is a character who I haven't watched it for a little while but um, I do need to give it another rewatch there is a character who is knocked down by a vehicle and then there is a that's 
initial, which I mean, like that's since Mean Girls. I think we're all really good at spotting those. <laughs> I did not expect Mean Girls to come up on this. Um, but yeah, so she, she's knocked down by a vehicle, and then there is a second jump scare, which absolutely got me. It's brilliant. It's it's more of a it's more because of the technicalities of this one that that I went for the orphanage. Um, so yeah, the the orphanage is is my favourite jump scare. Um, and that's my sixth DVD. The seventh disc that I'm going to ask myself for. Uh, if you're a regular listener to the Spooky Shelf podcast, you'll know that this is my favourite question to ask um, because it elicits such a good response. So I, where I was talking earlier about changing the the questions, this one I think will stay because I think it's 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 a good question. I like this one. It's because it's vague. You get all sorts of answers, which is great. Uh, which horror movie had the most emotional effect on you? So I've taken this quite in quite an odd way because there have been horror movies that have made me cry. There have been horror movies that have made me elated and and joyous. Like joy. I felt unbridled joy, particularly when... Uh, I was going to say one of them, actually, but I'm going to hang on to that one for a later question. Um, but... So the emotional effect that this one had on me was developing an utter obsession. So uh, the the seventh disc that's going on my spooky shelf is Dog Soldiers, which, I mean, you, you might not necessarily think immediately, oh, that's a hugely emotional experience or anything like that. But again, this, this goes back to me being 15 years old, uh, knowing that the transformation scene in Michael Jackson's thriller had really scared me. I was quite cautious when it came to sort of werewolf movies. And I'd heard um, some people at school talking about it. I'd never heard of the film before. And then one day I just found myself in WH Smith. WH Smith used to sell DVDs, but they were like really overpriced. But then one day I was going like, and I just found this DVD of dog soldiers. And I was just like, oh shit, that and it was 15 quid. Which at the time I was like, that's quite a lot of money. Because I didn't have a lot of money anyway. I don't have a lot of money now. But <laughs> um, So yeah, I bought Dog Soldiers, watched it, and it just began an absolute and utter obsession with that film. I wore, uh, and I, I actually, um, Neil Marshall shared a story of mine a little while ago. And on that story I'd said... I wore out my DVD of Dog Soldiers. I watched it that many times. I, we wore out VHSs all the time. All the time, because we just watched things on repeat. But that remains the only DVD that I actually wore out. So there was a point where... I probably couldn't do it now, but there was a point where I could absolutely recite the entire film. Just start to finish. It became sort of a running joke with my family, because we used to drive down from Southampton to Cornwall, which is like a four-hour drive. Um, and something that I think remains probably quite an innocuous thing on my dad's part, but actually became quite a formative experience and something that I I think I probably owe him quite a lot for this tiny, this one tiny decision. He bought us this um, in-the-car DVD player. So you literally, you, you plugged it into the cigarette lighter, you Velcroed these big chunky screens to the back of the seat, plug in your earphones and you can watch a film, like, as you're going along. So obviously... Southampton Cornwall, if you don't know, it's about, what, four-hour drive you're looking at minimum? I think I just said that, but anyway. And there was a certain point where, where I would put on the Dog Soldiers DVD, and I knew that at, by the time they got to the house in the film, it it denoted a certain amount of time until the... So that would be my block. So I knew if I put it on here, 
at this, uh, but there was one particular service station. I can't remember which one it is now. If I put Dog Soldiers on there, I know exactly how long it is until the end of the journey, and it's to the end of the film. So it just became a running joke with that one. But yeah, I, I was utterly obsessed with Dog Soldiers. I'd look for news of the sequel, which has, you know, it's never materialised, but I, I have read a book that came out recently called, which I'd hugely recommend by um, I think Janine Pipe. It's called Sausages, The Making of Dog Soldiers. There's some really, really cool insights, and she managed to speak to a lot of the cast and and the crew about their experiences making that film, because there's a lot of love for that film. And I think that fundamentally comes down to the fact that there's a lot of love for those characters. And because you're invested in those characters, you really, really give a shit, and it sticks in your mind. So it's, it's an utterly incredible movie, and the, the emotional effect it had on me was basically that was the turning point so i knew i was into horror and then i watched dog soldiers and i was like okay this is it i'm an out and out horror fan and i actually oh my god i just remember this i actually wrote that in year nine i think it was how old are you in year nine you're like 14 15 we were set a, a task in an english class to write a film review and i actually wrote mine about dog soldiers and my teacher was like um this sounds very gory doesn't it I was like yeah it's fucking great um, so yeah, Dog Soldiers. It's just so much fun, and you know there, there was um, in this book that I mentioned, Sausages, um, the making of Dog Soldiers. There is talk like Neil Marshall said, look, it's not going to be the next thing I work on, but things to do with moving on with a sequel for Dog Soldiers, or you know, just returning to that that idea. It's closer now than it ever has been, and I know that really you can't. You can't ever bank on anything being certain in in film because anything could happen. As we all as we all know, there's you know many stories of things just halting production or swapping actors. Anything like that can happen. So until we have a finished, you know, a finished cut of Dogs, obviously, I'm going to remain hopeful. I I I would love to see. Well, I don't know. Would I love to see more from it? Because it does beg the question: What would they do? There was always the the idea of um, Ryan's unit, who um, the the special not special patrol group, the um, special forces group that were out monitoring um, the the squaddy. So anyway, I, yeah, I, I if it, it seems like there would be an audience for it to me because it's very well loved in our community. Um, and it, it, you know, it would be interesting to see what they would do if they revisited it. So, uh, yeah, if there is more, great. If there's not, also great because we still have the original Dog Soldiers, and it is incredible. So, the eighth DVD that I'm going to put on my shelf. Uh, what was the best experience with a horror film in the cinema? So, I do have to um, give a, a, a shout out to a recent one. So, I went and saw Smile. Um, what was it? It was last year, actually, even. And that was so much fun to watch in the cinema. I get incredibly anxious going to the cinema because it's almost like if, if one person talks, it's like, well, the whole thing's ruined, which is it's unrealistic. And generally, I will allow... I'll give people a bit of a grace period before I start shouting at them because I, I do shout at people in cinemas. I've got no problem telling people to shut up. Um, but... It was, I was because it we went and saw it quite close to the release date, and I thought you're going to get all the dickheads who just want to go and you know film it on their phones and throw popcorn and shout at each other and chat all the way through. Which I've never understood why you'd want it. Why why are you paying that much money, particularly at our local cinema, Showcase, which is an incredible cinema? Um, 
Why are you paying so much money to sit there and just natter? Really fucks me off. Um, but yeah, so we went and saw Smile, and it was it was quite near to the release date, and I was a bit like, oh, this is, this could be a bit tricky. As soon as it started, everyone just because it, it opens with that incredible opening scene, which is genuinely creepy, um, and everyone just shut up and behaved, and then everyone screamed and laughed in the right places. That was genuinely, I, I almost wanted to thank everybody just for being like, right. Cheers for that, because <laughs> it shows people can behave at this place. So that was really, really good fun. Smile was amazing. But what I'm going to say for my uh, best experience with a horror film in the cinema, other than Drag Me to Hell, which completely freaked out my brother, which was amazing, uh, <laughs> uh, is Jordan Peele's Us. Because, and I mentioned earlier that there was a film where I felt just complete and pure joy watching. And that was Us. And I think there's a lot about you know I've heard conversations about us people saying like, oh you know it doesn't really make sense and people didn't really go for it I thought it was fucking great I loved us I thought it was and and the reason I loved us is because I had absolutely no idea where it was going at any time so it opens with the hands across the world and then it cuts to a oh no, yeah it opens with the, the hands across the world on TV you then, see, I can't. I might be getting these slightly muddled up. You then see Adelaide's character at the fun fair, and I, I did at that point. I did just because myself and my mate Rich, we've seen this quite a lot in TV shows, and my friend Mitch, who he knows more about um, plot than anyone else I know. He, he's, in, he's he's very good at just predicting the plots. He'll watch something for five minutes and go, right, so this happens, this this happens, and the number of times he's spot on is just like, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Um, see I, actually we I went to see us with Mitch but at the point where Adelaide goes into the maze I did get the I did twig the thing that happens and then it cuts to these bunny rabbits and you're like what the fuck am I looking at and then it goes into the, the house breaking thing and that whole sequence where the family are sat down they have that conversation that really did creep me out I, I genuinely did find that quite scary and then it goes on and from there and it's just this bonkers thing but that was the most it was the most fun I'd had in the cinema because the jokes landed so well like the the Keystone joke was amazing the joke where the, the, he goes what's home alone that absolutely killed me and then the music that score the the tethered mix of um the the score blending into I got five on it oh masterful absolutely brilliant it doesn't entirely make sense there's a lot of plot holes and stuff in it I don't give a shit it's so much fun. It, it, I had such a good time. Such a good time watching that one. Absolutely loved us. And the fact that it was in the cinema as well. It was That was around the time I decided to not watch trailers. I don't watch trailers anymore because I think trailers absolutely... There's there's a, an interesting idea with the, with the trailers. is like, Do we show as much as possible to get you in? Or do we intrigue you? And it's really interesting to see which trailers do that. And I would be interested to see like... If you could survey people who'd seen the trailer and made the decision based on that, that would be amazing. If we could get our hands on that data just to see what works for, you know, what film and whatever. That would be really, really interesting to see. Um, but yeah, Us, I didn't... I just, it was another one of those, I just knew it was Jordan Peele. And on the strength of Get Out, I was like, I don't care. He's a, I will go and see everything he does now. Um, so yeah, Us was just... It was just the best time. I, I came out of that and I was like, I just felt... 
as <laughs> Alison Edgar, MBE, might say, who's been on my other podcast a, little, a few times, she said, it made my heart sing. And I, I adored that. So I adored us. Okay, moving on then. We come to the ninth film on my very own spooky shelf. Uh, what is the most underrated horror film? I struggled with this one a little bit, to be honest, because it's difficult to know what what you consider underrated someone else might think is like the most overrated thing so anyway this is this is what i've I've put a special mention to as above so below because i really really love that film i really like that it's clearly it's a film with limited budget but huge imagination like they're not afraid to go okay so we're actually going to tackle like we're actually going to tackle a huge subject with this one we we're going to say like it is literally going into hell and to do that for a found footage movie in the catacombs in France and with as I say limited budget oh my god I, I absolutely adore the, the fucking stones of that film just to be like yeah no we can contend with like you know these huge lofty ideas we're going to go and explore them and, and discover them it's, it's fucking brilliant if you've not seen As Above So Below hugely hugely recommend that one um, but the answer I'm actually going to put up is something that I only watched recently. It was me and a few friends. We watched, in fact, the entire trilogy. I think it's a trilogy. They are making another one. But uh, my offering for the most underrated horror is Hell House LLC. Now, this is one that I'd sort of skirted around a few times before. I'd heard people mentioning it, saying it is actually it's really good. I used to really rail against like found footage movies, and I think it was just because there was an oversaturation of them I feel like in the past paranormal activity up to you know maybe sort of I guess you could you could argue that there is there's always been a string of you know found footage movies to with with differing levels of, of success but some of them I'm just like I just used to bounce off them now I find that they're among my favourite genre because I find them weirdly the scariest I think maybe if you take away the sort of the abstract idea that you're watching a story take place when you're put into it in that way it's not quite interactive but you're a bit closer to the action happening on screen I suppose sort of if not physically then certainly like emotionally and metaphorically I guess but Hell House LLC I thought was it's 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 really intriguing it's there's an incident that you see and hear about you see sort of the remnants of and then you hear about it in this haunted house that these guys have bought and, and decided to do up, and you know, turn into a bit of an attraction, um, which is a really cool concept. Like making a, an actual, you know, like a walk through haunted house. Which I mean, I can't do that. For if you, I really, really recommend that you go and listen to my episode of Hardcore Listing um, with seventy six and myself um, talking about uh, top five UK horror movies. Um, in fact, Jed Shepard was just on there, and he did uh, top five underrated UK horror movies. So, I mean, you know, fair enough, but it was my idea first. <laughs> Not really. Um, that was also a very good listen. But on the episode that I was on um, Hardcore Listing with Stu and Chris, I did tell the story of uh, me going to a, a walkthrough escape, horror escape room, and, and that did not end very well at all. Um I did tell a story with on the Louise Blaine episode as well, I think. So go and give those a little listen. They're good anyway. So, um, but yeah, the, it's sort of the the most sort of uh, 
I, I, I hesitate to say iconic, but I suppose it is because that's the part that I, I see the most of. Is there are these three life-size clowns that you well, you, it being a horror film, you know they're not, but what they assume is mannequins of these clowns, and one of them is one of them absolutely moves on its own. And it's it's really really cool. Like the mythology around it as well that they've built over the three films. I think the, the three films do sort of deteriorate in quality slightly, but the story and the mythology behind the house they do build on. And I, I really enjoy films with a mythology to them, like the John Wick stuff, like with the the idea that the coins are used as a currency and the hotel has these certain rules, that sort of thing. I love stuff that has a real tactile mythology to it and Hell House absolutely has that in spades as the series go on they are worth watching for sure all three of them like there's you know there's there's weaker points in the the second and the third one but overall they are very entertaining we did them all pretty much back to back like over the course of a weekend like over maybe one night or something a couple of nights but yeah LLC it's again it's one of these it's a low budget one that's got a lot of heart and it it just fucking has a go it's it's really really good fun I really enjoyed it I'd like to see more of that sort of thing please (laughs) Um, okay so the 10th film then what's the last film that scared you this was a really interesting one because I had to go back quite a way because this is the trouble where with us all being horror fans is I feel like with everything you see you get it it sort of strengthens you a bit more to like what scares you it's hard I find that I'm quite it's quite tricky for me to watch something and go okay fair enough you got me with a jump scare it's a loud noise sudden movement all that but to actually get under my skin and to, for me to have that creeping sense of dread that you know that's that's the high country there that's what we're that's what we're looking for i think so it was actually it was 2020 was the last time i genuinely was like oh shit this this film's actually really got me and it was um it was saint maud um so an honorable mention has to go to marianne because as rich rich allen was on um, the show and he explained how we were texting each other about marianne and how much that creeped us out so that's you know it's not a, it's not a film so technically fine I, I won't have it for this one but that is um that was a real scary one that first episode of that um but yeah saint maud and I, i've actually got to be a bit careful um say it's uh, talking too much about saint maud today because i'm actually going to be guesting on the drunken horror podcast um in fact today uh, i'm going to be guesting on the drunken horror podcast and we are going to be discussing in depth Saint Maud. Um, the the girls were very very kind and let me choose, you know, which horror film I wanted to talk about. And that's that's one in recent years, um, perhaps with the exception of one other, is one of the most effective horror movies in in the last few years. So I, I absolutely had to talk about Saint Maud because it's it's utterly brilliant. So I, I'm I'm probably not going to say too much on Saint Maud. Um, there is an incredible jump scare in St. Maud, which nearly was in my number six spot. That was the other one I was I was mentioning earlier. Um, there was a jump scare towards the end of that film that is the other one which made me jump out of my seat in the cinema. And St. Maud is, is very special to me because it was, it was the first film that I went to the cinema to see after the lockdowns in the UK. 
and obviously being a huge film fan and a huge horror horror fan not going to the cinema was really tough during the lockdown I know like obviously there was way bigger things going on and there was much bigger problems and everything and here's me crying about it but the the cinema is absolutely my favourite place on the planet so not being able to go there was really really shit um, and then to to go back and watch this you know I, I came out of it was like oh my god I'm, how lucky that we've had all this time away from the cinema and that's the film that I got to see immediately after the lockdown I turned to my wife and I said Lisa I genuinely believe that was an absolute masterpiece what do you think of it she went I fucking hated that <laughs> which is great which is great as as what's what's so much fun about discussing it discussing films and art in this way is that one person's favorite thing is another person's piece of trash so yeah um do listen out for the uh, the drunken horror podcast um that I, I'm going to be going on where we're going to be talking about St. Maud so that'll be I'm not sure when that comes out actually but it will be soon so um, yeah for more on St. Maud have a listen to that one okay number 11 what's the best death or kill you've ever seen in a horror movie uh, I actually really struggled with this one immediately what jumps to mind is um, is Bone Tomahawk which was I think was Chris Glasson's and I think someone else mentioned it actually it's, do you know I've recorded a few of these now I can't remember who said what for each specific question I'm afraid but yes Bone Tomahawk for the chap who gets split in half is it's an incredible piece <laughs> piece of special effects but that was awesome um, it's not the one I'm going to go for today though so what I'm going to go for is um, from the film Inside or I think it's L'Interieur um, is it Al L'Interieur or just L'Interieur I don't know but part of the uh, the French uh, new wave of extremity, which is it's it's a, uh, an era in horror cinema that I'm I really dance around. I'm quite careful with spacing out the films from that era um, because some of them are my favourites that are, that I've seen. And you know, it. I think I genuinely do think that. Well, it's a sweeping generalisation, but a lot of the French films I've seen have been some of my favourite films. So non-horror related. There is a film called Antouchable, which is it's Omar C and I cannot remember the the other the other chap's name. He's a very well known actor in France. Um, that's among one of my favourites. But yes, so French films are among my favourites. They, there's I think there's a real culture of understanding that cinema is, you know, more than just a commercial commodity, if you like in France like it's it's respected as its own sort of artistic form which is lovely and I think you know it would be nice if we could adopt that um so yes uh inside uh does some incredible stuff with inverting the slasher genre um and it's 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 really worth seeking out I don't want to I almost don't want to give away too much so if you've not seen inside don't listen to this skip this question or even better, pause it, go away, watch inside, come back, and then listen to the <laughs> listen to the what my favourite kill is. It should become apparent, you know. Uh, um, but yeah, so the, the new wave of French extremity spurns out of all this at the time when France is having riots and things like that. Um, you know, France has never shied away from demonstrating it's not happy with its government, even in recent times. You know, uh, with the, all the protests about the retirement age changing, and I, you know what, well, we could learn a thing or two about that. 
<laughs> we could learn a thing or two from that, you know, um, in terms of not being too happy with our government, but you know, being quite apathetic to uh, to do anything about it. Um, so yeah, inside uh, it merges a couple of worlds that I've spent a bit of time. So obviously, horror I've spent a lot of time in, but for a short while. I ran the social media for a hypnobirthing company. So I went from being a gardener to running the social media from this hypnobirthing company, which is very strange. But I learned a lot about, obviously, birth and the process of birth and, and preparing for birth and all that sort of thing. Um, and it, it has sort of retextualized how I, I look at inside um, in certain ways. But essentially, uh, the kill that I'm talking about is... Um, among the ordeal that both women go through <laughs> in inside the the final thing which puts the nail in the coffin of our our protagonist is that um there is a a c section which is performed on her with these scissors but the woman performing this c section it just stabs one blade really slowly through her belly button and then starts snipping upwards to get this baby out and it's just after everything that these these two have been through which is it's it's honestly genuinely go and watch it if you've not seen it it's utterly incredible but out of all the ordeal that they've gone through to have this final snipping up of the of this pregnant belly which is is a very threatening image and it you know it potentially is very upsetting but it really, really stuck in my mind as to like, oh fuck, that's a you know, it plays on fears of surgery, and if you're pregnant watching that film, Christ, that I well, I wouldn't watch it. I don't think if I were pregnant, which is you know unlikely, um, I think I would struggle watching that. So you know, um, it's I struggle to say it's a fun film. It's a very interesting film. It's very graphic. It's very, very gory. Very violent. Um, I love it, um, but yeah, that's my, that's my favourite kill is this, the C section from Inside. So yeah, that's uh, Inside. Then definitely go and definitely go watch that if you can stomach it. <laughs> Quite literally, <laughs> oh, that was awful. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, number twelve. One film from your favourite horror director. This one I actually struggled with more than I thought. I thought it would be quite easy. I hadn't really considered it myself, but I thought once I started thinking about it. A director would just come to mind quite quickly, but they didn't. So it took me a little bit of time to uh, to figure out who it was I was going to mention. But again, looking to sort of France again. So Julia Ducourneau, I think, has so far she's done two feature films, which both of them have absolutely blown me away. So I'm going to mention Titan for uh, one film from my favourite horror director. I saw this last year and I didn't think I was going to get to see it because the the distribution wasn't brilliant over this way, like in in this part of the country. Um, And I think we even got it slightly later than other uh, countries as well. I seem to remember thinking, I'm desperate to see it because it was Julia DeCorno. And she's only done two, but she's absolutely another one of those people who I mentioned who is a mark of quality that I will go and see anything that she puts her name to now because Raw is such an incredible incredible coming of age story 
and has got an incredible ending as well. Speaking of you know perfect endings, as I have done, Raw has got an incredible ending, and I I absolutely adored that film. I remember seeing the the posters for it on the tube and just in that yellow, just all the way along the line. Oh, so good. But yeah, I, I'm gonna say to ten because. I feel like it, that one might be slightly less seen than Raw. Um, I wonder if that's possibly because of the, the subject matter is slightly more abstract. But um, I, I came out of that thinking it was a perfect film. It was an absolutely perfect film. Like, um, I remember. Like, it's funny how like films become known for like a thing. You know, like occasionally, like you'd be like, "Oh, uh, what's that film? Oh, this is the one where someone has sex with a car." You know, and, and that's probably what people remember most from T10. But I think it's—I've it's, always been fascinated by by gender, um, and there's so many ideas about gender and identity and that sort of thing that that come from T10 that that keep it keeps you keeps you invested because you're you're presented with a character who realistically like you don't know anything about but the first thing well not the first thing but one of the things you see them do quite early on is and for seemingly no reason is just kill some people and and it's just not mentioned again it's like right that happened and now she moves on and, and does something else so it's quite a it's it's it is an odd it's a, it is an odd film below the surface level of someone has sex with a car and then is finds himself to be pregnant that's it is quite odd i suppose on the surface but on a, on a deeper sort of level i just found it so moving and the relationship between the father character and our protagonist is just it it develops so well it's just, it, i really really believed I really believed in their relationship, and again, speaking of endings, it is an odd ending. But it, it you know, in that way that I, I do worry that, in the same way that I find with David Lynch films, that with Julia DeCorner, I do worry I'm not intelligent enough to understand what what it's saying. Or, but then I think that's probably because I do spend most of my time watching narrative and plot-driven films rather than. You know things like Lynch is largely their their mood pieces and that sort of thing. So I think I, I just need to develop that muscle in myself a bit more. But yeah, um, uh, Julia DeCorner, I I bought the the girls on top tees. I bought her one pretty much as soon as I had a bit of free cash to to splash out on it. And it's one of my favourite t-shirts. And I, I I really regret the fact that it's got quite a big bolognese stain on it because it's pure white. <laughs> um. But yeah, it, I will see anything that, that Julia DeCorno puts out now because I, I adore, I've adored both of her previous works. So yeah, Titan is one film from my favourite horror director. And then finally, this probably isn't too much of a surprise because I've talked about this film at length on this podcast quite a lot. Um, a f- my favourite horror from the last five years. Um... Again, Saint Maud came close to this one. It really, really did, and actually, so did to ten. Um, but my my favourite horror from the last five years is Host, um, and obviously we had you know 
somebody who appeared in that film on this podcast, which wow, that was that was quite the boon. Getting to speak to somebody who was involved with the making of that film because I think it is a perfect film. Um, Zoom seance. That was the text between Rob Savage and, and Jed Shepard. I believe it's those two, and then that sparked off what what was host and just what an incredible encapsulation of you know our, our worries about the pandemic and the fact that it came out and we we'd all had time to understand the language and the grammar of Zoom. And it, and and they just went yeah this is this is we're making a, a horror film about it. It's utterly incredible, absolutely sensational piece of work. Um. And again, it's it's one of these found footage things because it, it kind of is, but kind of isn't found footage if you see what I mean. But the way it's presented, I, I did watch this on a TV, but I imagine watching this on a laptop would be it would be quite quite the immersive experience. And then obviously, Dashcam, which came afterwards, I adored that too. I really really enjoyed Dashcam as like a roller coaster ride. Um, but Host, absolutely. Absolutely incredible filmmaking. The editing of it must have just been painstaking. So it, it's yeah, for my money, I think because it it was it came out at a time of great, not even national, but great sort of global worry and concern. And obviously, you know, not we didn't know a huge amount about the pandemic in the early days. And then I think Host came out in the summer. Of 2020, so they turned it around so quickly, and to to produce something of that quality under those circumstances, again, like as with Midnight Mass, but you know, even more so with Host because we were isolated. Incredible, quite literally a zeitgeist. So, yeah, and, and I think it will stand the test of time. I think it's in my top ten horror movies of all time which maybe even it might be a different list to these but so that that concludes my spooky shelf um so i'm going to run down the the titles very very quickly so this is how my spooky shelf looks van helsing the woman in black halloween lake mungo midnight mass the orphanage dog soldiers us hellhouse llc saint maud inside titan and host I'm quite happy with how that's come out. Actually, I wasn't sure what what sort of shape this shelf would take, um, so I'm quite intrigued that those are the ones that have come up. Again, as I say with everybody, if you ask me on a different day, I might give you a different list. Um, but yeah, that was that was my spooky shelf. And then going forward, the show might change slightly. It's not going to be too different. I'm just going to, I think, change up the questions. But from yeah, from our, our next recording, which I'm not even sure when that is, to be honest with you. Uh, there will be different questions um, put to my guests. So thank you for joining me for this episode of The Spooky Shelf. You can rate The the Spooky Shelf on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Please give us five stars because it really, really helps us bump up the numbers. Um, my thanks, as always, to Cosme Nichim for creating such incredible artwork uh, for the podcast. And it's quite fitting for this one, I think. And to Raul Coley and Mike Flanagan um, I suppose yeah thank you for making something as perfect as Midnight Mass and something that I felt as passionate about and also the invitation is always open if you want to come on because I, I, I imagine you're champing at the bit thinking right well we could we could carry on with you know working on Fall of the House of Usher which we're getting presumably later this Halloween uh, or we could go on the Spooky Shelf podcast so 
you know, it's a, it's a difficult choice. It's a difficult choice. I would find that one a difficult one to make, to be honest, if I were Mike Flanagan. <laughs> um, have a lovely week. Take care of yourselves. And we will see you next time with some brand new questions on the Spooky Shelf podcast.